Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review, and better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. I've embarked on a journey to get to know amazingly awesome HR and business professionals. These conversations create the foundation for my book on what it takes to do HR Like a Boss. Today, I am joined by a dear friend of mine, Steve Harris. Steve and I met a number of years ago when we had just both started our HR businesses and we wanted to pick each other's brains, and it turned into a really neat business friendship. Uh, Steve and I have presented at uh, a Kent State HR Forum to over 100 students a, a year or so ago. So, Steve, thank you for joining me, and I'm super glad to uh, be spending some time with you today. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate you considering me to be a part of this. It's an interesting topic, high impact, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. You got it. So for those that don't know you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing today and a little bit of your background in human resources and your consulting practice you had. Wow, okay, I'm gonna try to keep it at a high level. Um, I've, I've had trouble keeping a job over my career, so I've had a few different careers. I started out as a systems analyst in the steel mills. Um, I automated steel mills for a few years and then I made the, the illogical step into human resources. Uh, worked in the comp group, uh, moved into the banking industry, uh, was fortunate enough to have, gee whiz, um, at least one or two handfuls of different jobs in the HR arena, um, most of which were really sort of the, the, the bridge of HR into the business world. Um, and I evolved out of that um, into starting my own consulting practice called the People Advantage. Um, and I, I managed that for, for six years. Um, and we focused on um, helping businesses articulate their, their vision, their uh, strategy, their mission, their values, a uh, big piece. Um, and I also helped them kind of figure out how to, how to bring that to life, whether it was through the way they managed their people or maybe the way that they prioritized what their business needed to tackle. Um, so that leads up to kind of the current day. Uh, right now, I'm, I hold the title of Chief Administrative Officer uh, which most people have no idea what that means. And quite frankly, there are some days when I don't know what it means either. Uh, but really, the role that I play um, is about being glue and oil. So uh, where there are situations that we need to make sure that the, the organization is cohesive and moving forward in the same direction, uh, that's where you'll tend to find me, um, as well as situations that maybe aren't going quite as well as they should. And a little bit of oil um, is going to help things move more smoothly. So I tend to get into situations where I help build something, process capability, uh, make sure that it can be handed off, um, and then I'm on to the next thing. So I sit um, in a pretty fun spot, really. I love that. That's a really cool uh, analogy, the glue and oil. That's neat. That is so you, for sure. So having touched a little bit of HR in, in, in your career, do you, do you mind sharing how you, how you describe the purpose of human resources, especially with some of the consulting work you did that was around mission, vision, values, et cetera. So how, how would you describe that? Well, I mean, it's, it, I wouldn't describe it in very complicated terms. I mean, it, you know, there, there are some cliches that are baked into this, but once you peel it back, you, you, you quickly get away from the cliches. But human resources is arguably the most precious resource that an organization can have. Right, so uh, it ought to be committed to making sure that you're maximizing the value of those, of those resources. Um, so that's what I see as the most important role, the highest purpose 
that human resources group can play in an organization is to figure out how to maximize that. Now, when you start asking questions like, oh, what does that entail? That's when you get out of the world of cliches, right? You start talking about real stuff, you know, like what value do we put on employee engagement? How do we define employee engagement? All right, we spend a lot of money on benefits and salaries. Are we spending that the right way? You know, how do we make sure that we're really uh, making people's lives as rich and enjoyable as they can be? So there's, there's lots of pieces and parts to it that fall under that umbrella that are anything but cliche. It's, it's, it's real stuff. Yeah. Do you think sometimes, I mean, especially in the past, and I've heard this a lot, that uh, is, is it hard to measure some of those things? And at times, then, if you can't necessarily put a measurement on it, then those that aren't in HR can maybe not necessarily see the value of having a workforce that has a great culture. And, and, and obviously, you can look at like turnover or general performance. But I'm just curious, is, is some of the things in HR feel subjective, right? They're not necessarily um, specific to a number. It's a, it's a feel that your, your culture has or whatever you want to describe. Does that, have you experienced that in your consulting and in your current role and in the past? We'd like to be able to measure everything, wouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, right. that would that'd take us off the hook of making hard decisions. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of a I'm a sucker for just really good solid fundamental leadership, you know, and you know that it's kind of the role of the leader is to figure out how to operate in the gray area, you know, in those circumstances that it is more of a feel. Um, the you may be able to back into measurements to support how you really think about a situation, but at the end of the day, is it is it really driven by by measures? So. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's just a reality that that's, that's the space uh, of HR, but I think it's more the space of leadership in an organization than it is just the HR practice. Yeah, and one of the things that I'm trying to get across and, and get into dialogue about is the responsibility that HR has to those other business leaders to have them understand that, that dynamic because, and, and, and oftentimes HR is brought in to hire you or fire you, right? And that's, that's maybe the limited experience you have, but truly your time is spent with your, your coworkers or your managers. So HR's influence on those managers to help them develop people and, and avoid some of those unique, difficult conversations that HR has to get involved in just because something got messed up or that's how a company runs or involves the HR function in, the, in their organization, so. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, and we probably both worked in organizations where uh, if HR is in a meeting, man, that, it changes the meeting, right? And it, it means something bad's gonna happen or it means we need to watch what we say or it means that we have to have a meeting after the meeting because we said something we shouldn't have said. Um, you know, those, some of that comes with territory, but some of it's unfortunate, kind of toxic, right? And, and you know, there, I believe there's a lot, there are a lot of things that uh, HR professionals can do to position themselves to avoid as much of that as possible to be seen in a different light. Um, I think sometimes it's, it's out of your control to some degree uh, because the, the organization views human resources in that way. The leadership sets the tone, right? And, and if that's the projection that, that you know, they provide to the organization about how they perceive human resources, it could be a tough, a tough battle to fight. Are there any, I mean, do you mind me picking your brain on like, what are, what are a few of those things you think you can change, can change that perception or things that organizations can do to, 
to not create that stigma that that HR is you know it's it's toxic or it's it's they're only here to to let you go or to be the policy police so to speak. Yeah, can I talk about both sides of that, the individual and the and the organization? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the individual. It's you know it kind of comes down to you know when people when people are around you and they see how you operate, what do they think your focus is? Right? Are you trying to figure out just how to get 100% of the performance reviews done so you can check that off your box? You know, or are you talking with leaders and working with managers to help them have the right conversations around performance, you know, so that people can be the best they can be and, and you know, do the highest value work that they're positioned to be able to do. So I think, I think a lot of that, you know, and, and this is really hard for many people um, and, uh, the one that's talking right now falls in that category, right? It's hard to step outside of yourself and see, well, you know, how, how am I perceived? Uh, but I think it's a really good checkpoint uh, for HR professionals to have. Uh, from an organizational standpoint, uh, one of the phrases I really uh, dislike, and maybe this will get me, uh, maybe you won't use this whole segment because of that, is a seat at the table, right? Uh, you know, HR needs a seat. You know what? Um, when you're working in a good organization, uh, they want the people around that are going to help them solve the issues. They're going to help them achieve where the company's going to go. And if we're focused on the org chart, we're focused at what it means to have be granted or be entitled a seat at the table. Um, it, you're you're going to miss you're going to miss the opportunity. Um, and the best you can do is try to understand what it means to add the most value and to help your leaders be the best leaders. Um, and then you might be saying, man, I did, wish I didn't have a seat at this table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It'll happen, right? So. It's interesting you mentioned that because it is a polarizing topic in, in, in doing my research and talking to people uh, similar to you, that kind of proverbial seat at the table has, has been brought up. If it's not every time, it's almost every other time. And then there's, there's a dichotomy in how people feel about that. I feel like in some regards, it's a it's it's kind of a stain on HR that we have to constantly talk about this, or it's 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 so like 1990s vocabulary in HR. Yeah. Um, but in some cases, there's 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 a lot of uh, interest in getting it and keeping it um, and 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 leveraging it, which is kind of a, a part in the book that we're going to talk about because it it is so HR-ish, right? It's such a it's such a term that's used in 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 the field of human resources. Uh, but I, I agree with you. It's like you, you just want people in, in this camp, on this team, trying to help us drive results and figure out the issues we have as quickly as we can. So, And by the way, so people can enjoy what they're doing and they can make as much money as they can while they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting part, but I, pre I appreciate you, uh, you sharing that. So is there, is there a particular time based upon those things you talked about um, back in your career uh, uh, that, that you saw that impact that you could see the results coming as to some change in policy or a, a strategic decision that was made with, uh, leaders, managers, uh, executives, et cetera, uh, to where HR had a profound impact on the business. Yeah. Um, that's an easy one for me. There is one situation that I was fortunate enough to be involved in in my career that speaks to that question. Um, so much more than anything else I've ever done, uh, John. It was, uh, I worked in the banking industry and we had some new leadership uh, come in and uh, we decided that we basically wanted to tear down uh, one of the 
the, the pip, probably the most pivotal position in the entire organization for leveraging results, and that's the branch manager. You know, we had 1,200 branches. Uh, we had a manager in each one of them. And I'm pretty sure that if you went into a room with uh, 1,200 branch managers, you'd come out with about 1,300 views on what that job really was. There just wasn't consistency. So uh, that was a that was the first piece is let's 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 create a consistent role so that we can build a model around it. Um, and then we had all kinds of challenges like um, you know a lot of people that just weren't the right fit uh, for the go forward. <clears throat> we wanted to discern you know who might not be a great fit, but but who can we develop um, into the right role? I could go on and on about all the things that we changed, but we basically revamped that entire position um, in the organization, including new recruiting models, incentive pay, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it was really the first time that uh, I was involved in something that was so directly uh, and profoundly linked to the performance, the success, and the future of the business that it was, it was palpable. Um, and um, I probably worked um, as hard and is in more hours than I've ever worked on anything in my professional life. Um, and it was the most satisfying as well. Did we get it all right? No, uh, we got a lot right. Um, and, and I was a part of a team that, you know, was really important at that point in time uh, in that company. And I know I can guarantee that uh, if you interviewed all of us, we carry around our, our same version of the, wow, that was hard, but that was cool theme. Yeah, no, no, thanks for sharing. That's a neat story. And I'm sure uh, many that may be listening have had some experience with that. Um, obviously, the, the, the bank, and we don't need to name it, but I know it's well known within our community and uh, making that type of change, right? That profound type of change. And you mentioned something that, that to me is is unique and that it just wasn't clear to the people in the role what they were supposed to be doing and everybody had a different version of what that's supposed to do how, how can you scale that and then you, you already had scaled it with 1200 of them right so kind of a bit of mad chaos and ability to measure success in that role if everybody thought that their responsibility was different one person than the next so that's neat is there anything in that like with some of the hr professionals you might have worked with or or throughout your career that, that makes someone in HR stand out to you, like the, their, their ability to do A, B, and C kind of allows them to be stellar in, in, in their field? Well, a couple of characteristics that come to mind um, ap absolutely were exemplified um, in, in that work that we did. Uh, one of them was just the ability to uh, not just carry on themselves, but also facilitate uh, just authentic dialogue, right? I mean, just just to be able to, in, in a, a, an unassuming, in a non-threatening way, um, to be able to just get the right issues out on the table and talk talk through them objectively. Uh, that's really difficult um, to do in many cases. And even if you've mastered that as an individual, uh, to then take that and uh, use facilitation skills layered on top of it, to help other people have the right conversations, um, you know, big challenge. Now, uh, what I found is sometimes urgency uh, is your best friend. Sometimes you just don't have time to dance around, right? And and the urgency itself can can drive you, or at least make the environment more conducive. At the end of the day, it's a I think it's a skill set 
that is really important for successful HR people to have. And by the way, it's a life skill too, right? So it's not like you leave that one in the office, right? You get to take it with you and, and, and use it in all parts of your life. Um, Got to be careful. Sometimes I know I know I've done some of that in in my family. My family, my wife, my wife will say to me, "Hey, hey, John, this is not a business meeting. We're just having dinner right now." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, sorry, still still in work mode." I know. I get the my the, the comment I get is, um, you know, I, I'm not somebody that works for you. <laughs> right. In which case, I I think I pretty consistently say, "You're right. I've got the org chart upside down." <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. Is there is there anything? One of the premises in the book is you know, kind of key, key principles in it is is thinking differently, um, uh, to, you know, be different, and take action. Those those are some kind of key principles. Is there anything when I say that to you that that comes to mind? You talked about facilitation and collaboration. Uh, it's a true art form. Are, are there any other? nuggets in there from your, your experience that, that kind of resonates with you that would help people think about that in a different way or how, how to take action? Uh, yeah, you, you, you fed me a few of these bullets in full disclosure ahead of time. So I had a chance to at least think about it. Um, and what really came to mind on those types of items, John, is, uh, is just your true north, right? And, and making sure that you understand what that is, because I, you know, another characteristic I think of, not just a successful HR person, but you know, any type of leader is just being able to be authentic, right? And and authentic, consistent. Uh, and I think if you know what your true north is, and and you can get into the mode of being authentic consistently, then uh, I think I don't think you're going to go too far wrong. Now, the, the challenge, I think, for, uh, for HR professionals in particular is that our field seems to be pretty heavily bombarded with faddish type of thing, right? So, you know, the fish philosophy and, you know, some of the engagement models, and, and it's real easy. Some of them are really cool, right? They're neat, and you want to you just latch onto it, and you want it to change your life, and you know, nothing's going to change our life. You know, the, the true north is the true north. Some of these other things are really, really useful and really helpful to build out your toolkit and to help you think differently. Uh, but none of them are going to solve any issues for you. You know, so I'm not saying that you should ignore them. Uh, just don't let them cause you to veer off. I mean, it, employee engagement's a good example for me. Right. There, how many employee engagement models are out there? That, that was a rhetorical question. Too many. Um, a lot. Right. And at the end of the day, don't they kind of all boil down to if you can't tell people what you need them to do, position them to be able to do it well and give them the tools that they need. I mean, if you can't do that, then none of the other stuff really matters. You know, so I love the concept of employee engagement. Um, I, you know, we, we did a lot of gala work and, and I think the structure is phenomenal. Uh, you know, sometimes I look at it and I think, well, I could have, I could have built most of that, you know, in my garage. Um, but that's not fair, uh, because there's a lot more science behind it. So I love, I love the concept. I love the fact that it, 
it you know kind of prioritizes the things that are most important the satisfiers you know in the old Hertzberg world uh, but um, at the end of the day if it becomes engagement for the sake of engagement scores and engagement for the sake of checking off boxes um, probably missing the boat but what a great a great tool to help you think differently and, and bring some structure to some of those issues. I think that goes into that point we talked about earlier of this kind of feel based with, with data and Gallup creates that consistency with their, their 12 questions and, and the commonality of those time over time. And you can kind of see how the organization is ebbing and flowing and then you can use some feel uh, in that regard. And feel is, is a key part in, you know, in, in my journey in writing this book uh, I know I shared this with you uh, off off camera about my dad passing away and, and, and in the midst of that, seeing all these people come to visit him and how, how they made, how they told me about how my dad made them feel, right? And so when I think about that as an organization, how does the organization make you feel? And I think HR is a tremendous representation of that, good and bad, right? Good and bad. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the fact that you know you're we're hiring or firing. I had I had one guest at one time talked about HR sometimes carries an AK-47 around. They feel like sometimes they come into a meeting. It's like, geez, Louis, that was really an egregious, like, very probably not appropriate, but it was like I'm carrying a gun with me, and that's how I feel coming into this meeting because you feel awkward or whatever the case might be. He was trying to get his point across, but I'm just curious, and and it's it's interesting, like. Up, for the regular, in, the individual not in HR, the employee, the, the line manager, um, a shop worker or sales employee or whatever the case might be, what, what do you think the reasons are behind their feeling that they just don't like HR? Well, some of it, I think, ties back to uh, the comments about how HR is positioned, right? And at the end of the day, uh, maybe it comes down to trust and a person's perception of the motivations of HR. Um, I suppose if um, you're a salesperson, uh, you're a shop worker, maybe the only time you ever interact with HR people was when it's bad stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, that's probably a part of it, but I really do believe that if the HR professional is taking the time to understand the business, the job, the challenges, the issues, it's not going to totally uh, make misperceptions go away, but it certainly is going to mitigate a lot of that. And, you know, the other, we, we didn't really talk about uh, the, the C word courage, you know, but, you know, I, there's a lot of courage involved in making judgments and, and dealing with the squishy space. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's also that same courage that allows you to maybe be a little bit vulnerable. You know, HR people are usually generally pretty buttoned up, right? I mean, pretty polished and, you know, they say the right thing and they speak carefully. And again, I'm looking at me when I'm saying this, but, um, you know, generally that that's the way they're perceived, right? So, you know, maybe, you know, allow yourself to be, have the courage to be a little bit more vulnerable might help. Yeah, creates that approachability that I think sometimes is is that gap like you said anytime you're involved something bad's happening so let's maybe not make that every time that you're seeing someone in HR that it's bad it kind of soft softens that that experience speaking of that trying to find the right people you know one of the you mentioned the beginning 
the responsibility of HR is to is to is to to maximize and leverage and um, provide opportunities for your human capital, your human resource. Is is there a particular question or two or kind of a a, a main um, premise you're trying to get out when you interview an employee to see if they're gonna this is gonna work out for the company as well as you know as importantly the employee uh, as a relationship when trying to hire someone. I wish there was a silver bullet question. Um, maybe maybe it'll be in your book, John. It, it, there'll be there'll be some options. I can tell you that there'll be some, some options. You can That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, That's good. you 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 pick your your color of silver that you like the most, right? <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, I, that, that's a little bit of a tough one for me. I, I, I think actually, though, it does play back to your, to your feel, you know, the feel part of it. I, there, there are ways you can assess skills, and you know that arguably is kind of the, the easier part. You know, the other part is the fit part, the culture part, the, you know, the soft stuff. And um, I mean, one, one thing that I try to do to get to that piece is to have multiple touch points, right? So, you know, if you're going to, if, if you're going to uh, interview somebody for 30 minutes and then make a decision about whether to hire them or not, you know, they could have had a great 30 minutes. Uh, they could have had a bad 30 minutes. Um, you know, how, you know, you might've had a good 30 minutes or a bad 30 minutes, right? As the interviewer, you know, so, I like to I like to involve multiple people in the process. I like to involve uh, multiple touch points, you know, more than one interview, maybe some email dialogue, you know, just to try to really understand uh, you know people's baselines, um, and really encourage them to do the same. Right. So you know, part of the interviewing process you know, really needs to be to make sure the candidate understands that they're interviewing you as well. I mean, treat them with respect and dignity because, you know, they, although maybe some people don't have options today, um, creating an environment where uh, you, you, you try to call that out is, it's not a good thing. Yeah, treat them with respect and dignity and, and you know, maybe, maybe they're the best fit in the world, but you got to impress them too. There's a sales component to this. For sure. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And as much as you can have people, I think, Having worked in the recruiting space now for 15 years, it's one of those things where I've encouraged every candidate I've ever talked to in preparing for an interview is that you're going to be so much better off if you if you view this interview as important to get to know them and the company as for them to get to know you. Where I think a lot of candidates are so there's kind of a power play that, that maybe it happens intentionally or unintentionally, but the employer has the job that I have to offer and I'm just here to try to get that job, or as opposed to the I think really good candidates are like, I'm comfortable where I'm at, even if I am unemployed, because I'm trying to find the right fit. And I'm trying to figure out if this works for me as much as it works for you. Because if I can do that, then we have a chance for success. Yeah, that, those are great points. And, and I think uh, someday you'll probably write a book about generational differences too. But yes. <laughs> I mean, that, you, know, you, you kind of throw that layer, that whole you know, set of issues on top of of the discussion we're having today and especially the recruiting discussion. Um, there's definitely a, a, a sort of a power, a power hierarchy that seems to emerge in all that. Yeah. 
let's not get ahead of myself here, Steve. I got to get this one done first. This is this is a big enough deal. I can't, I can't be writing a book two, um, although I've got a few in my head, and that one, I know we've talked about that in the past uh, around the generational differences, which is all all wonderful spirit. So just a couple more questions for you. Uh, this one, I just want to take you back just a few years for you, uh, if, if you could, uh, based upon all the things that you know now, uh, based upon your professional and personal experiences, if you could give yourself some advice back at the beginning of your career, what would that be? Wow. Uh, oof. Well, I walked you through my career a bit and you know, I've had a few of them, right? So when I look at where I am now and understand how it's a product of all the different things that I've done, um, you know, when I was making, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was making those changes, I mean, those, that was kind of a big deal. And I mean, you can, you can see I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken. So, you know, that was back in the day when switching jobs wasn't cool. The first time I made a job change, my dad's first comment was, what about your pension? You know, I was 30. <laughs> it's like, pension? Yeah, okay, whatever, right? Uh, but uh, the mentality shifted so much. So maybe there's more of this now that happens. But back then, uh, I don't know that I fully embraced the, the, uh, the fortune I had to be able to move into different types of things and the opportunities that were presented to me. And, you know, they, uh, I think they were all because I wanted them to happen. Maybe, maybe some of them were done to me instead of for me. I don't really know. Didn't think much about it. Uh, but I probably wished back then that I'd have the vision I have now in the rearview mirror that, you know what, that stuff all came together in a way that I would never have understood it was going to. So just embrace the, the good fortune to have new opportunities. Yeah, I, I would think, and I don't know if you, you would attest to that, but I know for me, having a diverse set of experiences in my career before I became an entrepreneur and started my business, I think, put me in a position to, to probably be a little bit more successful or have a better chance of being successful than maybe just having one role, doing one thing, and then my, my lens of a business was really kind of myopic to, in my case, would have been sales, right? So having some other business-related experience really provided me the opportunity to, to be more prepared to be an entrepreneur, which part of this concept is to look at your role as an owner of what it is you do and have a diverse level of experience and knowledge in the business climate, business environment. So, Yeah, right. good stuff. I'll get you out of here on this. Because it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sure if my definition is consistent with what other people feel. So, how would you describe someone that does HR like a boss? Ooh, how would I describe HR like a boss? Well, one one concept that comes to mind is locus of control, right? So, HR like a boss. So, make sure that uh, you're. You're maximizing your human capital, maximizing the spend on people um, in an intentional way. So like a boss. So make sure that what, what you're doing, how you're treating people, how you're spending your dollars um, is uh, something that you're, you're doing it on purpose. That's what, that's what I, I think of. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So Steve, it was, it was great to spend some time with you. You mentioned a couple of things that uh, really stuck in, in out to me, the, 
how, how HR is positioned inside of the company, which is based upon the people that are currently in it, people that were in that legacy role before uh, those in HR, and especially how the executive and, and leadership team is supporting uh, the human resource function. You talked about uh, the feel that's required in, in HR to, to do that job well and the courage in the gray. Um, I think that was unique to make some of those unique decisions that may not have all the data and facts that you have to base on and having a true north and being consistent and authentic to that, I think is uh, all those things feel like Steve Harris to me and why uh, you stand out and are, 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 are I'm always, always, always thankful to spend the time with you. So I appreciate you uh, taking a little time out of your day. Well, thanks for thinking of me. Um, this is good stuff. And uh, same back at you, John. It's always good to spend spend some time with you. We'll have to find a way to do some more of this. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for checking out the HR Like a Boss podcast. If it resonates with you, please consider leaving a rating and review. And better yet, subscribe and share with a friend. Until next time, let's continue to aspire to do amazingly awesome HR.